Good evening, church. Um, Please remain standing and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be continuing on our study in Luke um, with Jesus feeding the 5,000 in verses 10 through 17. We read the following. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. There were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Just as we sing, we confess that you are only hope in life and death. And Lord, we are here because of that. And so, Lord, we pray as we as we sing, as we dig into your word, Lord, that your spirit would be at work among us, drawing our hearts to you, Lord. Work in me, work through me, Lord. You saw the struggle I had with this passage, just figuring it out, Lord. And so I pray now that, Lord, that I would, I would step aside and you would speak, Lord. Speak to us this evening, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's fair to say that we as people, we love to experience something personally, intimately, rather than hear about it ourselves, right? I think, you know, hearing a story about something is one thing, but being there and participating in it is another, right? Hearing a song through our headphones or speakers on the radio is one thing, but there's a reason bands tour and thousands come to their shows. The experience of being there is greater than listening to it on your own, similar to sporting events, anything, right? We want to participate in it. We want to be there. How many times have you had a friend tell you a story, oh, you just had to be there? The story was cool, but man, if you were there, you would get it better than you would if, you know, you just heard it. I think the story that we're going over tonight is one of those you had to be there moments, right? Jesus has done a lot of miracles in his ministry, and a lot of them are just one-on-one personal miracles that he's done. Healed a specific person, raised someone from the dead, a lot of incredible things. But here we see Jesus do a miracle on a mass scale feeding thousands and thousands, right? We read that there's 5,000 men here. Depending on who you read, what commentary, this is anywhere between 5,000 people and probably 20, right? You're talking about just men plus if their wives are there, any children, right? In one of the gospel accounts, we are told that there is a child, the one that has the food. So this is not just 5,000 men, but there's more people here. This is a huge crowd. 
And all the gospel accounts tell the story. A lot of the stories in the gospels are right there in one or in another, but this outside of the resurrection is the only story that is told in all four of them. It's a profound story. It was important to the early church. And we start this story in verse 10, reading, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And in my experience with uh, the student ministry, with anything in life, right, um, just because we talked about something a week ago doesn't mean we remember it today, right? Even more so, the farther away we get from that point. Um, If you guys remember, it's been a few weeks since Leo preached on verses 1 through 6. Last week, we went through a little bit of what what we called somewhat like an interlude in this passage, where Luke mentions Herod and, and his questions about Jesus, but it's not necessarily part of the flow of the story. It's just a side note. A week before that, we celebrated our 10 years and ordained Uncle Craig, and so that was a thematic message. So it's been three weeks since Leo had preached on verses 1 through 6. And in that passage, we hear Jesus commissioning the disciples to go out on their first missionary journey, giving them power, encouraging them, and sending them off. And that passage ends saying, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Then we have the little Herod interlude, and then our text today, which begins on their return. It says, On their return, the apostles told them all that they had done, And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. The disciples return from their journey. I'm sure they have a lot to say, a lot of things to talk about. But Luke doesn't give us any details. He doesn't tell us about the things that they saw, the things they did, the opposition they faced. But he simply states that they returned and told Jesus about it. And it's interesting to note, all the Gospels do this that they just go on to this story right here. And it says that instead of recounting these things, there's no Peter bragging about the demons he cast out or the cool things he did or any disciples trying to prove their worth. It says that Jesus took them and they withdrew. They try to get away. That Jesus is interested with a little bit of peace and quiet for the disciples if they need rest. Luke here says that Jesus took the disciples and they withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Matthew tells the story saying that Jesus went away to a desolate place. John tells us that Jesus went up on a mountain just to sit and be with his disciples. And Mark tells it this way, saying, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. That after this exhausting missionary journey, after the labor that the disciples had put in, all the things that they had gone through, The first thing on Jesus' mind is getting them some peace and quiet, some relaxation. Things were so chaotic and busy on their return, they couldn't even sit down and enjoy a meal. And Jesus says, let's come away. Let's get some quiet. Let's get some rest. As we get into our story, this is a little side note here that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the rest of it, but I think it's important for us to consider that God cares about our rest, cares about our peace and quiet, that he is not okay with us being overworked, overworried, overstressed, right? Burnout happens a lot in churches and ministry because leaders are overworked. They don't get that break. Happens with us in our regular jobs, our regular lives, that when there is no reprieve, there's no rest, we are overstressed. So Jesus wants to get them away for a little bit. He wants them to sit, 
have a breather, take a break. Um, but I think like every mother in this room knows that the second you sit down for a moment of rest, for a break, your toddler comes busting down the door, either carrying something they shouldn't be or having done something they shouldn't have done, right? Um, so it is with Jesus and the disciples. Luke tells us that when the crowds learned it, they followed him. The crowds don't allow them to catch their breath. They don't give them the rest. Jesus tries to withdraw with the disciples to get some peace and quiet, but they follow them into that peace and quiet and disrupt it. And each of the gospel writers tell it this way, that as Jesus and his disciples sought rest and a chance to get away for a minute, the crowds follow. In fact, Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus and disciples, while doing this, get in a boat to get across the sea. And the crowds see this, they know where they're going to land, and they run by foot to beat them there, to meet them, say, hey, all right, we know where Jesus is going to land, we're going to be there before he is. They were determined to get to Jesus. They wanted to see him, hear him, and Jesus being Jesus does not turn them away. Matthew says that Jesus sees the crowd waiting for him, and he had compassion on them and healed the sick. Mark says that Jesus saw them, and, he and again, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. And Luke here tells us that he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. And again, here we see the heart of Jesus towards the people, towards us, that regardless of how inconvenient it is, regardless of his desire to get away and take a break with the disciples, the crowd following him is what takes his attention and he cares about them and he turns to them and he shows compassion and grace towards them and he teaches and heals. That when they don't deserve it, when they're annoying, he still loves them. So for us, right, regardless of what's going on in our lives, for Jesus there is no bad time for us to go to him. We are not going to annoy him, inconvenience him, but he will show compassion and hear us out. And so Jesus does this. He spends the day teaching them about the kingdom of God and healing the sick. He does this all day. Hour after hour passes, and Jesus keeps at his work. Um, I don't know if any of you saw the, the show that was, was big, right? Um, the Chosen, right? It's a huge, one of the bigger productions in, in Christian shows and things like that. And one of the episodes... There's a scene where we don't see Jesus, but we see these lines coming to him, and it's all day. It's going late into the night, and the disciples are off to the side arguing about things, but Jesus is there laboring and working and meeting people. And I'd imagine this is something like this, where there is just a long line of people, a huge crowd around him, waiting to see him, waiting to hear from him, waiting to be healed by him, and there is no rest for him. And this is going on all day. And Luke tells us that, the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and the countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. And the disciples see that the sun is starting to dip towards the horizon. They see the size of the crowd. They see that they are not at the local convention center. There is no hotel room upstairs for these guys to get back to. There's no restaurant down the street for them to go get a meal. They are in a remote, desolate place. And disciples tell Jesus, it's time to end the party. Send them away. They need to 
travel to the next city to be able to find lodging, to get food. And we all know the story, right? Jesus doesn't send them away. He tells them, you give them something to eat. They don't need to leave. They don't need to go find food. It's time for you to give them food. And again, in each of the gospel accounts, we see that the disciples are not on board with this plan. They see the crowd. They know how many people are there. And they say, we don't have anything to give them. What are you talking about? Do you want us to go buy some? Because that's going to be expensive. It's going to be a lot of money to feed thousands and thousands of people. We don't have those kind of funds. No way. All right, the story tells us all we have is five loaves and two fish. And Andrew found this little boy with five loaves and two fish. And they're barley loaves. This is like peasant food. They are not artisan sourdough breads. This is something that a little peasant boy has in his sack to feed himself and maybe his siblings. But Jesus says, bring it here. Go tell the people to sit down in groups of 50. And Jesus performs an incredible miracle, one that you had to be there to see, right? I can't imagine what this was like. To see Jesus take these five measly loaves, pray over them, bless them, and start to break them and hand them out. And he continues to do so and continues to do so. And the story tells us that there is so much food that everyone eats, everyone has their fill, and there is bread left over. Like We have no category for this. We've never seen anything like this. These people have never seen anything like this. And this is where Luke's story, or Luke's version of the story ends. And as I was going through this, studying through this, you know, because all the gospel accounts tell the story, you look at each one thing, all right, what, what's, what's told elsewhere, what are some details? But Luke just ends it here. He moves on to another conversation on another day. He just transitions forward. But he's the only one that ends it here. The rest of the gospels continue. Matthew and Mark tell us how this very night, Jesus walks on water. Another, another incredible, just nature-defying miracle that he does. And John tells that story as well, but he continues on the narrative. John says, all right, we had this amazing moment happen, feeding the 5,000, but it didn't end there. The story continues. And I think it would be important for us to go to John's version of the story and look at the way he tells it and what he says happens afterwards. Because he provides some insight. He gives us some important things to think about when we think about this story of the 5,000. Because I could have ended the sermon just focusing on, wow, Jesus did an amazing miracle. He manifested bread from just five loaves. He could do amazing things in your life. All true. But Jesus has other things in mind this next day when he's talking to this very same crowd. It's important for us to look at that and think about that. John continues this narrative and shows us that Jesus is more concerned with the spiritual needs of these people and the spiritual nature of his ministry than he is with the physical. He fed them bread this day. 5,000 people. Could be up to 20. He fed them bread and fish, but they need something else. And so for the rest of the message, I want us to jump over to John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, open up. Um, I'm not going to read the whole chapter even though the story spans the whole chapter. I think it's something like 70 verses. 
um, John chapter 6 could take a whole sermon series for a few weeks, right? It's a huge, meaty passage. We're not going to do that. We're just going to look at some of the truths. Just follow along in your Bibles there and, and see where, where Jesus points us bouncing off of the story of feeding the 5,000. Somebody's car. It's all good. Um, all right. So John chapter 6, verse 14. Just going to keep going. Huh? All right. We move on. Uh, we press forward. So John tells us, after this story, the ending of this story, like I said, Luke just ends it. John gives us a little more insight to, the, to what's going on in the hearts of the people that were there what they were experiencing, and what this moment, this feeding, what it led to them thinking about Jesus. And in verse 14, we read, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They saw the miracle that Jesus had performed. They saw his power. And they decided that this means Jesus is a prophet. But not just any ordinary prophet. He is the prophet, the promised one. He will be like Moses to the people. It's the one we've been waiting for. And you'd think that this realization, this, 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 this thought they're having, would be a good thing, right? They're seeing who Jesus is. They're seeing that he is their Messiah. He is the one who is sent by God. They see the significance that he's not just an ordinary teacher doing cool things, but he is someone special. But John says in the next verse saying, that Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And Jesus knows what they are thinking. He knows their intent. And he knows that they recognize something is happening here. They recognize Jesus is special. In fact, he just might be their promised Messiah. But the kind of Messiah they're hoping Jesus to be is not the one that Jesus is and the one that they need. Right, we see throughout the Gospels that the people wanted a political savior, a political Messiah, someone who's going to come and free them from the oppression of Rome. And so when they see that Jesus is the prophet, the one who is sent, this is what they have in mind. And they're ready to take him as a mob would and make him king. And Jesus sees this. He knows this. And he knows he's not here for political insurrection. He's not here to lead a re revolt against Rome. He knows that's going to end badly for him and for all the Jewish people. And so Jesus withdraws from them. And he sends the disciples on their way by boat to Capernaum. Right? This is the incredible moment where Jesus sends his disciples away. He stays back, and later that night, he walks on water to them. Again, another just mind-blowing miracle. And though John tells us that story, he blows through it. He tells it in a few verses and keeps moving forward because John is more concerned with what goes on the next day. John tells us that the next day the crowd is looking for Jesus, this very same crowd that Jesus fed the day before. They're looking for Jesus. They saw that he had sent the disciples away in the boat. They saw that he stayed back, that he withdrew. But in the morning, he's nowhere to be found. They're looking for him. Where is this Jesus? So what they decide is, well, we're going to follow the disciples to Capernaum. We're going to get our own boats. We're going to go over there. We're going to look for them and find out what happened. And so they do this. They get in their boats. They head to Capernaum. And when the disciples, when they find the disciples, they also find Jesus. 
He didn't get in the boat, but he's here somehow. And so they ask what looks like a simple, straightforward question, saying, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're not asking anything profound. They just want to know. We saw you didn't go, and yet you're here. When and how did you get here? And we see that Jesus actually doesn't answer this question. He could have. Could have taken the opportunity to show off another just crazy thing that he could do. Another sign. Prove that he is someone special. You guys like the, the bread appearing out of thin air? Just me making a bunch of bread? How about me walking on water? Blow their minds a little bit? Do a demonstration? But Jesus knows these people. He knows their hearts and their motive, and he doesn't answer the question. He doesn't demonstrate his ability to walk on water for them here. But instead, he addresses what's really going on in their hearts, why they're here in the first place, why they're following him around. In John 6, 26, we read, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus says, you're only looking for me because you guys were hungry and I fed you bread. You don't care about the miracles I perform. You don't care about the signs that I display. You just want the material benefits that you receive from me. And it seems interesting to pit this against the fact that just before this, John said that they saw this sign, the feeding of the 5,000, and they thought, this is the prophet. But Jesus says, You're not here because of the sign. You saw the sign, but you're here because of the material benefit, because of the bread. And what you perceive me being your leader will be, which is, again, more material and physical benefit to themselves as they are freed from the oppression of Rome. And for the rest of this passage, Jesus draws the attention away from the physical, the material, and he turns it towards the spiritual. Says you guys are here because of physical bread, but you guys need something else. He pits their love for material versus their lack of interest in the heavenly. They get so caught up in the material that when Jesus is pointing him them all to the gospel, to himself, to who he truly is and wh- who he is and why he is there, they don't get it. It's honestly this chapter is one of the most frustrating bits of dialogue because it is just back and forth of Jesus just laying out the truth, the gospel for them, and then being so blind and stubborn to it. When Nathan was just reading the call to worship, that that passage of there being a veil as they read Moses and they can't see the glory of God because of it. Again, it just brought me back to this conversation. As I was prepping this, thinking about it, and then Nathan reading that call to worship, it goes hand in hand. These people had a veil. They could not see what Jesus was telling them. Again, I'd recommend in your own personal time to take some time and just spend it in John 6. See how the whole chapter unfolds, how the story goes through. Because it all goes hand in hand. It's all connected. Jesus' discussion here towards the end of chapter 6 is directly related to the story in Luke about feeding the 5,000. The story John tells here that all the Gospels tell, they go hand in hand. We can't understand Jesus feeding the 5,000 and what it spiritually signifies for us if we don't understand all of John 6. So Jesus continues 
right? He says, you guys came because you wanted physical bread. This is why you're following me. And Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Right? He says, you have come looking for me because you ate physical bread. But don't work for regular bread. Don't go all out looking for regular bread. Work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Regular food goes bad. It rots. But there is a type of food that is eternal. Seek that food. The Son of Man, right, the Messiah, he will give it to you. And again, it's obvious Jesus is talking about something spiritual here, but they don't get it. They get caught up on the work, saying, oh, you told us not to work for, for physical bread? Well, what work do we need to do to get this eternal bread? What, what's, what do we need to do? What's this checklist? Jesus, tell us, and we'll do it, and give us this physical, or this eternal bread. But Jesus doesn't give them a to-do list. He doesn't tell them the 10 steps, the 10 things they need to do. He says, this is the work of God, faith. Again, bringing it to the spiritual. Not a physical thing, but something internal and spiritual. Faith. The work of God is that you would believe in him who he has sent. And again, we see Jesus turning the discussion away from physical material things, from physical bread, from physical labor, to spiritual bread, spiritual labor, faith. And the interesting thing to note here is that the crowds, they get at least a bit of this. They're not mistaken about who Jesus is talking about when he says, believing in the one who is sent. They don't understand the, the faith and the work part or the bread part, but they know who he is referring to. They get directly saying, all right, you want us to believe in you? This is the work you want us to do? You want us to believe? Then, do, and then, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Again, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And this question is almost, I don't know, shocking. It's like when I have the audacity to ask my wife where something is in the kitchen when it's been in the same drawer in the same place for the, for the, since the day we moved in. right? How is this a question? How do you not know the answer to this? Did they already forget the day before? They've literally been chasing Jesus around because of the things he's been doing, the work he's been performing, the signs. Yesterday, he literally took five measly loaves of bread, two fish, and feed what could have been 20,000 people. He taught and healed in front of their very own eyes. He has been performing work. And before this story, they were already chasing him, right? They were going around the, the sea trying to beat him to his destination because they wanted to see more of him. Yet here they have the audacity to ask what sign he will give. What work will he perform that they may see and believe? And here we see, right, that they're, they're only going to accept Jesus on their own terms. Jesus needs to meet a certain quota, a certain status to win them over, to convince them. They don't care about the things that he's already done and the things that, that, are, that the, and the truth that those things are pointing to. They want the next, next best thing. Do a sign. Serve us. 
What's even crazier is the type of sign they ask for. Like, it, it's honestly, like, offensive that they would bring this up. They give an example. They say, we want you to do a sign, a work that we might see and believe. We want to see you do something. And they say, we have an example. What sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Really? (laughs) What sign are you going to do for us, Jesus? What work will you perform? The great prophet Moses, he he made manna come down from heaven for our fathers. Our ancestors got to eat manna from heaven. Now that's a sign. What are you going to do, Jesus? And I don't know how Jesus isn't pulling out his hair. Like there's an undoubted parallel between the, the Old Testament Jews receiving manna in the wilderness and God himself, Jesus, handing these people bread that he is creating in front of their very own eyes. The people in the Old Testament, they lacked. Right? They had nothing, they had a need, and God answered that need. Every morning they were able to wake up and collect manna. Manna that they did not prep the soil for, they did not plant anything, they did not harvest grain, they did not make any dough, they did not bake it, they did absolutely nothing to receive this, and God freely provided for them and cared for them. And here in this story, again, these people did nothing for Jesus to give them this food. They lacked he saw their need, and he provided. And I think I would lose my mind, honestly, if one day I fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, and the next day they come back saying, well, we want something more. We want something greater, like the one that our, our fathers had in the wilderness. And the crazy thing is they physically got to be here and experience this. The story of the manna is a story that they've heard. They weren't there. They didn't experience that, but they know it was something special. And here they are actually experiencing this before their very own eyes, and it's not enough for them. They want more. You'd think they'd be like, wow, this is incredible. Our fathers were blessed by God that he rained down manna, bread from heaven for them to be sustained and served. And here we are now without any food, and this man in front of us is feeding us. He took five loaves of bread, broke this apart. This is just like that. This is an incredible miracle. God is working here and now. But no, they swing the other way. Rather than see the parallel, they try to leverage the story of manna against Jesus. They want to see him perform a greater sign, a greater miracle. For him to prove to them that he is in fact sent from God and greater than Moses. But as John stated earlier, this crowd does not see Jesus as the type of Messiah they need, but the one they want. Right? They have a, they have a hope that he might be their political Messiah, someone that they can make king, and someone that they will free them from the oppression of Rome, and better yet, this guy gives free food. What's better than that? This is who we want. And Jesus knows this. He knows that though they claim that the right sign would win them over, the right miracle convinced, would convince them, But the reality is there is no sign that would do so. He's healed. He's turned water into wine. He's raised the dead. Yesterday, he took five loaves of bread, two fish, 
He fed thousands and thousands of people. There was enough food left over that nobody lacked. Everyone ate their fill and was satisfied. And yet none of this, none of these miracles, none of these things that they are eyewitnesses to, none of it is enough to convince them of who Jesus is. And they're following not because of the signs and miracles, but because of the material benefit that they're giving, that they're getting. And so they're seeking this Messiah, this who they're putting Jesus up to be, not because of the spiritual needs they have, because of their material and political ones. And often we treat God like this. We see God as our provider. True, he is. And we come to him with our needs, our prayers for, for blessings, for finance, for health, for a lot of things, right? We come to God with our prayers and that is okay. But often it's on to the next. It's only loving God for the things he's giving us, rather seeing the spiritual reality between us and him. And so Jesus doesn't cater their command. They say, what sign are you going to do? What work will you perform that we may see and believe? And Jesus doesn't pull out the big guns. He doesn't perform the most mind-blowing miracle or supernatural sign that he has in his playbook. Instead, he addresses their manna comment, and he turns again the focus from physical to spiritual. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, first off, relax about Moses. He didn't give manna, God did. Secondly, something greater than that manna is here now. God now offers true bread from heaven, not manna that spoiled the next day. Not just merely barley loaves being multiplied, but true bread. And this bread is not the type you have for lunch. But it is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus again talking about himself. This is a different bread altogether than the one they're asking for, the one they're wanting. And again, the people don't see the spiritual side to this. They're still thinking of physical bread, that God is going to, Jesus is going to somehow give them better bread than they had yesterday, better bread than man, in, in the manna that their fathers ate. And so they say, sir, give us this bread always. And at this point, this conversation here mirrors the story of Jesus and the woman at the well in, in John chapter 4. As she comes to the well to draw water, and Jesus engages her in conversation. And similarly there, he offers true water, living water, that she would drink and never be thirsty again. Water that gives everlasting life. And the woman there says a similar thing to Jesus, that the people say here. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Right? At this point in the conversation, she's thinking about physical water. She hates the fact that she has to walk to this well and get water, but Jesus is offering water, and she's like, wait, that means I don't have to come to this well? Life's going to be easier? Life's going to be better? Yes, please. And that conversation goes on and unfolds very differently than this conversation, where she finally sees the reality of who Jesus is and what he means by living water. 
But here in chapter 6, when they're saying, Sir, give us this bread always, they're misunderstanding just as she did at first. They see the physical and practical offer. If this man gives true bread from heaven, bread that we can eat and be never hungry again, bread that we can eat every day, then Jesus, multiply more of those loves, buddy. Loaves, buddy. Well, we're all about it. We want it. We want that bread. But unlike the woman at the well who eventually sees that this is a spiritual discussion that Jesus is having with her, these people don't see it. They don't see the spiritual bread that Jesus is talking about. They want the physical. And this conversation plays out very different than hers did. And so Jesus continues, and he's more explicit. He's not leaving for room for misinterpretation. And originally when I had written out this section of the sermon, I wanted to read this huge section out of John chapter 6. I wanted to read the whole section that's called the, the I am the bread of life discourse because it's important to what we're talking about. It's important to, to the uh, process of this narrative and what Jesus is trying to tease out and point to them. Uh, but as I was going through it this afternoon, I realized this sermon is way too long if I just hang out in these 40 verses. So we're going to kind of popcorn through them and draw some I think things that are, Jesus is trying to point to. But um, ultimately, Jesus is just pulling back the curtain. Though he's speaking in metaphor throughout this passage, he's being clearer and clearer and clearer. He's defining terms, and he's explicitly explaining each of the things that they are finding so confusing, and they still don't get it. In turn, it just frustrates them. After all of this discussion about bread from heaven, feeding 5,000, the manna, Jesus says, God gives true bread. And the bread from God is he who is sent by God to bring life. And Jesus says, I am this bread. He starts saying, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says, forget about manna. Forget about the bread you even ate yesterday. Forget physical bread altogether, the stuff you're asking for now. I, me, I am the bread of life. Come to me and I will feed you. Believe in me and I will quench your thirst. And Jesus doesn't leave room for them to butt in and say something crazy again. He moves on. He addresses their unbelief. The problem here he says, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He's addressing what they said, right? What are you going to do that we may see and believe? And he's saying, you have seen. You see me. You've seen what I've done so far and you do not believe. You see the signs. You, are, you see what I'm capable of. But that is all you see. And in his commentary on, on the Gospel of John, D.A. Carson comments here saying, they have seen only bread and power, not what they signify, not what they point to. This crowd has witnessed the divine revealer at work. They've seen what Jesus can do, what he's doing. But only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. It's a heartbreaking thing to consider, to see what Jesus has been doing, not be spurred onto faith, but just have your curiosity, your political ambitions, and your appetites aroused. But in reality, how often is this the case for us? That we hear the promises of God. 
we see his power at work. We see him answering prayers in our lives or in the lives of our family, our friends, our neighbors, others in our church. We see how God physically works daily. And yet only our curiosity, our appetites, our material ambitions are aroused, but not our faith. That often we are more in love with the blessings he gives, the ways he might be working in our lives, the gifts that we enjoy from God here on earth than we are with the God who gives those things. And when the bread goes away, like it does in this story, when the things that God is providing and blessing us with, when they go away, when God stops working in our lives the way we want him to or expect him to, if it's just based on those gifts, then it falters, it fades, it becomes unsteady and disappears. And the sad part about this whole story, this whole passage, is that's what happens in this text. John 6 ends with this crowd. The very people that Jesus fed the day before, the one that they they were looking at him as potentially their king. And not just this crowd, but Jesus' wider circle of disciples outside of the 12. The story ends with them being so upset with things that Jesus says in John chapter 6 that they walk away. They turn on him. This dialogue continues back and forth. And as Jesus lays out the spiritual needs they have, as he lays out the gospel, he points them to the actual bread that they need. It frustrates them. It confuses them. They turn on him and want no part in him. Jesus is right. They came seeking him not because he is their true Messiah, but they sought him for the physical benefits he gave. He filled their stomachs with bread, and they wanted that bread on demand. And so when he offers the spiritual, they grumble and turn away. They leave. Again, they wanted Jesus on their terms, not on God's. And it's a rude awakening when, when, uh, to themselves when Jesus doesn't cater to their demands. The way he answers, they hate it. But Jesus continues. He lays out the gospel for his listeners here in John chapter 6. He sees their stubbornness, their lack of faith, and he continues laying out the fact that he is himself the bread of heaven. He is the bread of life, the bread that they need. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven. I have come to save. Those who look on me and believe in me, I will raise on the last day. I will give them eternal life. In a way, Jesus is answering one of their early questions, right? What work do we need to do? He says, believe. And this is what you believe. Believe in the Son, the one sent by God. He's the bread you need, spiritually speaking. He is the one that nourishes and feeds and gives everlasting life. John tells us that his listeners don't like this. He continues on saying they grumble. 
Jesus, as clear as day, states that he is the one who's come down from heaven. And though he lays out the spiritual reality of why he has come down from heaven, they don't focus on that. They look around at one another and go, is this guy serious? Isn't his dad Joseph? Don't we know his parents? Don't we know where he was born, who he is, where he's from? How is he saying that he has come down from heaven? He's talking crazy. And again, Jesus answers their stubbornness with the gospel. He continues on the metaphor. He doesn't tell them about the incarnation, doesn't try to explain how he came down from heaven, but again, he keeps feeding them the things that they need to hear, the truth. He says, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that, no, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus again reiterates the I am statement that he's, that he's saying here. I am the bread of life. And whoever ha- believes in me has eternal life. And in a way, Jesus also answers, right, what sign are you going to give? Our fathers had manna. Jesus says, your fathers ate manna and died. But I come from heaven, and I give bread that leads to life. I myself am the sign, in a sense. That manna did not save them from death. The bread that you ate yesterday will not save you from death. But I bring bread that if you eat it, you will not die like your fathers did. And this bread is me. I am myself this living bread. I have come down from heaven to give my flesh for the life of the world that you may eat of me and live. And again, Jesus here is alluding to the fact that he's going to make a sacrifice with his flesh. He's going to do something with his flesh that gives life. He's going to give his own life for those who will believe in him. But they don't see it. Again, they get caught up in one line, one thing that Jesus says. He lays out all the spiritual reality, and they get caught up on one phrase. Earlier it was work. Before that it was, what do you mean you came down from heaven? Here, they get frustrated on the flesh part. Like, hey, we just wanted some bread. And what you're saying is as confusing as ever, right? Jesus is speaking in metaphor. He's not talking about his own flesh physically in terms of cannibalism, right? I don't know how Jesus isn't pulling out his hair, like I said earlier. How do they not see what he is saying? But there's a veil before their eyes, and they can't see it. It's evident in the text that Jesus is trying to tell them a spiritual reality, but they have no clue what he means by him saying he's going to give his flesh that they may eat of it. It confuses them. It frustrates them. And Jesus, again, doesn't respond in in breaking down the metaphor and say, oh, what I mean by my flesh is I'm going to die on a cross. And if you believe in me, that is like eating bread. It's not what he tells them. He goes on with the metaphor. He continues on. He takes it a step further If they didn't like the flesh part, what he says next is even more offensive, more difficult to understand. 
says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Again, Jesus is basically repeating what he said already. He's the one sent by God. He is the bread sent from heaven by God. And this bread is not like the manna that their fathers ate and died. But if you eat this bread, you will live forever. He's repeating what he's saying and he's expanding on the metaphor. Now he's including flesh and blood. He makes this conditional as well. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. You must do this. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Again, if the comment about eating flesh was offensive and confusing enough, Jesus is taking it too far here. The law explicitly prohibited Jews from drinking blood. And here Jesus is saying, unless they eat my flesh, unless you guys drink my blood, then you have no life. And John tells us that even Jesus' regular disciples, the outer circle, the ones outside the twelve, they don't like this. They say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And they turn and walk away from him. Again, remember, this story started with 5,000 people being fed. Anywhere between five and 20,000 people, likely. They are following Jesus, chasing him around, on to the next best thing. And by the end of the story, Jesus is turning to the last of the 12. His 12 disciples, saying, hey, do you guys want to leave too? Every single person turns and leaves Jesus because of the things he says in John chapter 6. And the reality is, the things that Jesus is saying here, they're a hard saying. They do come across as difficult, confusing. Flesh and blood, you need to eat of me, drink of me. It's off-putting. It sounds like cannibalism, especially from a distance, especially if there's a veil over your eyes and you can't see what he's talking about, the spiritual nature of these things. In some commentaries, they argue that Jesus is already here instituting the communion saying how significant, how special communion is, and the fact that it is actually Jesus' blood, actually Jesus' body. And though the language is the same, it's not what Jesus has in mind here. Jesus is pointing to the cross, where he will be hung, where he will be beaten, his flesh torn, blood shed, where he will freely himself give up of his, his flesh, to be hung on it, to be the sacrifice that we need. And he does so to take the wrath of God for us. He has his body broken, blood shed, not just physically, 
but spiritually he endures the wrath of God there on the cross. And he does this, again, for a spiritual reason, that we would look on him and believe, that we might spiritually eat of, his, of the bread that he gives and drink the blood that he offers and cleanses us by and makes us righteous with. And so the question for us tonight is, as we consider this story as a whole, not just the feeding, but everything that goes on afterwards in this conversation. Have we eaten the true bread that Jesus has to offer? Each and every one of us personally, have we? Have we accepted his flesh, the sacrifice that Jesus has done on our behalf? Have we looked at him as true food and true drink? Not the material, not the physical the spiritual that he offers, the life that he gives by doing so? Or are we like this crowd? Are we still hoping for signs? Are we still holding out for one more miracle to win us over? I started this message saying that this is probably one of those moments in history that you had to be there. You had to experience it for yourself. What an amazing thing to witness. But the sad reality is that the people who were there, it did nothing for them. They ate that bread, and they eventually died. They did not see the spiritual reality that, that, that Jesus' work there signified. They did not see the reality of who Jesus was and what that meant for them. And if all we're looking for in our Messiah is the things that he does for us, physically, the way he provides the way he makes us feel good, the finances he gives, the blessings, then no sign, nothing he does will ever be good enough for us. When those things dry up, when they're going through hard, hard times and we're not experiencing the highs of life, it won't be enough. It won't be enough to remember the miracle Jesus did two weeks ago or the week before unless we truly know him and abide in him and partake of his body and his blood and believe on him and be saved. So church, as we continue today, as we go about our lives, let's look to Jesus. Not because he miraculously turned five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed people at a basketball game, not because he healed a friend or a cousin, not because he provided for us financially, not because he says wise things, but because of who he is, how he saves, because of the life he gives, because he welcomes us in to be one with him. He gives life. Church, let's pray. Lord, we, we acknowledge that, that in your word there are a lot of hard sayings. There are a lot of things that can be confusing, difficult. And Lord, we confess that often we look to you for the material things that you give, for the blessings you offer. 
and we fail to see you for who you are. We fail to acknowledge our spiritual need of you. We fail to look to you and be saved, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, that this story in John chapter 6, as it flows out of the feeding of the 5,000, this incredible thing, Lord, we pray that as we go about our day, that this story would be a warning to us. That experiencing the material and physical blessings of you is not enough to claim that we know you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would truly know you. That we would, receive, that we would see the reality of the gospel. That you came down from heaven and you offered life. That when we talk about bread, that your flesh is the true bread, the true food. And as we talk about your blood as true drink, Lord, that we acknowledge that these are symbolic things, that they signify the way that you nourish us, the way you sustain us, the way that you, you feed and satisfy our spiritual hunger and our spiritual thirst. And that is the kind of satisfaction we need in you. Not full bellies, not full bank accounts, not full healthy lives, but we need you. We need to know you and be known by you. So Lord, I pray that that would be a reality in our lives. As we leave this place, that we would live it that we would proclaim your goodness until you come, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.